Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, you're in for a real treat with this podcast. So much industry focus and conversation these days is dominated by tech, data and media mix that creativity, let's call it commercial creativity, and its possibilities to catapult brands and messages into culture and create lasting business impact is sidelined. But not today. Last week, three creative legends were inducted into the Advertising Hall of Fame. And for the first time ever, embarrassingly, it includes two women. What wonderful and wild stories from the trenches you're about to hear. Faye Davis, astonishingly now 80, was a co-creator of Singapore Airlines' iconic Singapore Girl and a board director in the, wait for it, 1970s at the then Ogilvy and Mather. She was the first woman in Australia to establish her own ad agency, DDI Adworks, in the 1980s, with brands from Alabache and Louis Vuitton jumping on board. Faye is a force of nature. Another Australian force is Sarah Barclay, with world-renowned work under her belt, ranging from Yellow Pages' Not Happy Jan, who doesn't like that one, love that one actually, to the whole-proof Ants Pants Sikkim Rex TV commercial and the fabulous Milkman. Sarah went global, of course, moving to New York with BBDO, Saatchi and Saatchi, and JWT. She's been Australia's leading female creative export forever. As you're about to hear, Sarah's outrageous talent got her to creative director level at some of the biggest ad agencies in the world, but never chief creative officer. At JWT, she watched 10 blokes get the gig, and never once was she given the chance, in her words, to turn down an offer. That part of the conversation today gets particularly interesting. Actually, all of it is. Before we get to our third Australian creative legend who openly talks about losing 20% of his brain to a major stroke three years ago, an important shout-out needs to go to Esther Clarahan, the renowned creative industry headhunter who punched through some glass to ensure these two women got their long-overdue recognition this year. As Esther says, an agency, albeit an outstanding one in the shape of the Campaign Palace, got Hall of Fame recognition as an entity before these women, any women, got a look in. To be fair, there was no pushback when Esther called time on the blokes for 2021. And speaking of blokes, this one is special too, Warren Brown. The recalcitrant upstart in the 1980s who bypassed the Australian ad industry entirely and headed to the UK with great ambition to make it in the heady and heaving London ad scene. With no experience, by the way. He became the most awarded creative in the UK at one stage and one of the world's best creatives full stop. And of course, he ultimately returned to Australia as a co-founder of the runaway agency success in BMF, still operating today under Enero ownership after the partners sold out. Warren's huge body of work from the AFL, TUIs and numerous campaigns for Australian lamb and beef are also world-renowned and so are his stories. Like farting, loudly, but not deliberately, apparently, on set while Brad Pitt was shooting a Levi's commercial. What happened after the fateful trumpet sound? You'll have to keep listening. 
So it's with great delight and respect that we bring you this conversation with three standout Australian creative beings who share their stories, learnings, loves, and perhaps a dash of melancholy on where we're at today. I know everyone is busy and focused on whatever we're focused on, but if you have time to mind-numbingly post and look at dumb shit on social media, do yourself a favour and hear these fine minds out. So enough from me. Here's the 2021 Advertising Hall of Fame inductees, Faye Davis, Sarah Barclay and Warren Brown. Right, let's get to it, guys. The first and the big, big interesting one here, of course, is that we have the first two women, as we mentioned in the intro, in the advertising Australia's Advertising Hall of Fame. There might even mean an agency called the Campaign Palace ahead of you. Um, fascinating little anecdote now in retrospect. But uh, let's talk why uh, why that is, why you guys think that is, why you women think that is, and your experience as women in advertising. And Sarah, we might just start with you because you've been you know, in New York. You were there when things were supposed to be a little bit more advanced than the rest of the world. And, and um at JWT, uh, creative director, but not an executive creative director or chief creative officer or whatever we call it now, right? But just talk to us through, you, you know, from from your journey as a, what, the second uh, graduate from the award school, winning award school in 1931. What was it, Sarah? It was early 80s. Early 80s, that'll do. It's close enough. Um, and then, you know, you, your journey from there. But just just on your initial impressions on um, and thoughts about becoming um, one of the first two women in the Advertising Hall of Fame, what the hell went, What the hell was going on and what did you see in your career? Um, in Australia, I probably wasn't that hungry to be a CCO, so I think it would be unfair for me to say that I didn't get the opportunity because I wasn't actually looking for it. But um, I knew that I wanted to, uh, you know, work internationally. So when we won the trip to New York and we shopped our book around and I got a job there, um, of course, I've, I felt the kind of maildom of advertising on a whole other level. Um, my first job was at BBDO and uh, it was Just to be clear, of, though, when you said your first trip to New York uh, as, uh, from winning something, what did you win? That was another great story. Um, we won a poster campaign for the Yellow Pages and the award for that, winning that award was a trip to New York. Right. So um, not only did we um, watch the fabulous director's cut of Blade Runner at Lady Macquarie's chair... Um, while we were receiving the award, we got given this gift to go to New York. So Open slather. You could do whatever we wanted. So you went job hunting, I think. We did indeed. And the first interview was with BBDO and we got the job immediately. So my partner and I, Tony Greenwood, and I moved to New York. and uh, That guy that guy called Shane. That guy called Shane, yeah. <laughs> and so you got to New York and just, yeah, just so fast track us through um, so, yeah. females, women in, in, the, in the ages ago. So BBDO, New York, I think I was there was only one other woman in the creative department when I first started. And that was um, not a, an enjoyable experience, but just seeing how the men were all you know, rulers in their ECD uh, roles and uh, it just didn't seem that women would get a fair shot at much with that sort of weight of men leading. 98, 98, 99, what was it? No, that was in 2000. Okay, and, 2000. And so then, of course, 9-11 happened and recession hit New York and, and lots of the world. I think Australia luckily escaped. So um, Shane and I went to London for a while because there was no getting another job in New York. And um, I nearly got three jobs in London, but knew I wasn't finished with New York. So then Bob Isherwood um, hired me uh, as, an e- as a global creative director for uh, Procter & Gamble. At Saatchi's. At Saatchi's in New York. So I went there. And, and yes, there were, there were women in the creative department there. So it felt much better than BBDO at that stage. 
Um, and I was working under Tony Granger there and it seemed to be much more equal, I think, at, at Sarchi's at that time and they seemed to be very supportive with Bob at the helm. So I felt sort of, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was discriminated against there. Uh, but but again, I was never sort of, I never went from ECD to CCO at, at Saatchi and then when I went to JWT after the, the second financial crisis in 2008, um, that was very, um, very weighted with, uh, with in, in fact, I was the only female ECD for most of the time I was there. And then they hired another one. And, and I think while I was there, which was 10 years, there were 10 different CCOs, all of whom were male and all of whom lasted maybe a year or 14 months. And at that point, did you want, you had any, any interest in, in, in a gig like a chief creative officer? I certainly would have liked to have been able to decline the offer. Yes, right. <laughs> um, but again, it was men hiring themselves, men again. And it was astonishing to me that when I looked around the industry, um, there was this dearth of, uh, of women in senior leadership roles in, in the creative department. And hence, a movement was started, which was called the 3% movement, which was started in 2012. And it was called 3% because there were only 3% of female CDs or ECDs in the US. Extraordinary. What year was that? 2012. And that didn't change until 2019 where, where they celebrated having 29% of women, which is still, you know, that's less than a third. And what about, and I'll get to Faye in a minute, but um, what about, uh, you, you know, what happened in terms of the way that you operated with the creative department, with a male-dominated creative department? Was there tension? Was there, was it, were you just respect, because you were great, so were they just literally go defer to Sarah, whatever she says goes, or was there, was there sort of some hangover? No, I think I was always um, I treated respectfully and, um, you know, I, I managed to hire lots of women and certainly tried to be a mentor for women coming into the industry. Um, but I um, don't feel I was discriminated against other than the glaring <laughs> observation that out of 10 people who were offered the job and, and I was, you know, a loyal worker there, I was not. Interesting. Well, sad, actually, not interesting, sad. Faye, now you've got a very, very different um, sort of perspective on things and a, a, a history, as we mentioned in the intro, a board director at Ogilvy in the 70s. And that was really unusual. If you're talking about Sarah in the late 90s trying to get an executive creative or chief creative office gig, and in the 2000s, you're on the board of a, an Australian agency in the 70s. What's your observations on one? Both of you, for the first time being, well, the first time having two women uh, in the Hall of Fame in advertising in Australia, but the broader context of women and what we see now as the debate and what you make of that. So there's about 500 questions in there, Faye. Let's start with the first one. Um, firstly, why did you? Why was the uh, the board uh, appointment in in the 70s? How did that happen? Well, I think you have to go back much earlier than that for a starter. As opposed to what Sarah was talking about, I had an entirely different introduction to advertising. It was almost by default. I worked for the Australian Opera and Ballet Company as a designer and a theatrical uh, artist. And uh, <clears throat> when 
a very famous uh, leading soprano came from overseas with her very famous conductor husband, put all the people who were in the creative department at at that particular organisation out of work. Just fired everyone, you mean? Well, yes, we were basically, she only arrived with her own entourage, so all the local people. So there was a, it was not to do with women, it was to do with the job. Right. So that was not a very good introduction. Um, anyway, I found um, a studio that was very famous for um, employing or art directors and creative directors from other agencies would come to the studio for their artwork and for photography, which was in Sydney. And I joined them and it's something which I learned later on when I owned my own agency. You never judge people by what they have what you think they should do, but rather what you th- what you think they can do. And uh, this particular person put me on, even though all my work was nothing to do with advertising right. whatsoever. It was all theatrical. What year was this? Oh, God, I can't remember. It was so long ago. I know. Well, when, when I said to, to, to uh, Sarah, 1932, it wasn't quite that for you, but it wasn't in the no. 60s, was it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, late 60s, yeah. Right. And uh, anyway, so that led to a position in um, leaving the country and going to Southeast Asia. Right. Um, And then I had great difficulty getting permits and kind of long story short with all of that, uh, I ended up in Singapore um, and Ian Beatty, who was then yes. uh, what they called an airline fundy, right. and he was he was a uh, Beatty ads it was called wasn't well, it? This is prior to Beatty ads. Okay. He was with uh, Leo Burnett. Okay, right. And he was looking after Qantas worldwide, and uh, then also had Singapore Airlines, which didn't exist at that stage. It was Malaysia Singapore Airlines. It was mm. a, then there was a big, huge upheaval politically. Uh, the country split. Uh, the federations uh, of, of states between Malaysia and Singapore that ceased to exist, and all of a sudden Singapore had an airline for the little little island that if you took off you couldn't even land in time. It was so small. So, so this was what to... early seventies then, was yes, it? Yeah, yeah, early seventies. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, but well, firstly, I've got to I've got to ch- double check the the fact here is that you were part of the team, right? That sort of created Singapore Girl. Yes. I want to make this absolutely clear because so many people, you know, try to say that they were either the originator or whatever. It was originally, I, I wasn't a writer. I was, crea- I was a creative uh, art director. So I didn't write or coin the phrase Singapore girl. That was an actual fact done by um, uh, a lyricist who, who wrote the, the lyrics for the jingle. Right. And he then wrote Singapore Girl. That was then taken up by the then writer. And then when I came on board, I then started to put the pictorial aspect of her into Got it. into okay. And just to clarify that even more, there was a, a fantastic photographer called uh, John Ashenhurst, and he, in actual fact, was prior to my my taking the, up the position and starting that agency with Ian. And he did the very, very first pictures of the girl in her uniform. And I was just thinking, talking about uh, you know, females and uh, gender equality and everything. I don't think that particular stance would possibly be possible now. Yes, It would probably right. be sexist um, to have a 
Singapore girl, you're a great way to fly, I don't think would be politically correct now. And so there are many things that we managed to do that I think would be very, very difficult for people in the industry today. Well, um, Faye, you've shared the the humble love around and the kudos (laughs) and credit around, so well done. But getting back to, um, you know, when you talked about your experience with Sarah being uh, somewhat different, Mm. uh, what what's the contrast there and why did you, you know, if I go back to my original question of you're on the board of, a, of a, an Australian agency, that there's a context of why you said your experience was different. So you didn't see, you didn't, you didn't experience any of that no. sort of glass ceiling, if you like. No, because um, w- when I was an, a founder member of an agency that in the end became world famous for one particular client, which was Singapore Airlines, and there were many other clients that we had apart from that. Uh, we also had Air Lanka and God knows how many others. I even had to do the design the uniforms for Air Lanka. So we were, we were sort of jack of all trades. Yeah, let's now design sort of studios that do that stuff yeah, now, Yeah, right? exactly. So um, it it was an entirely different sort, of, apart from the fact that it was based in Singapore. Uh, all the other agencies that we were involved with weren't Beatty ads. They were things like... BBH? B- yes. yes. In London. Um, on, Warren's shop, actually. Yeah. We'll get there. In fact, I met John Haggerty many times because that was our affiliated agency. You know. So we chose agencies around the world to be responsible for placement and things like that, although they didn't do any creative work. So it was an entirely different thing because we were a sort of a unit that was sought after and there was no competition within that unit because we were all in the same – all came from the same base for the same reason – and so there was none of this hierarchy. There was nothing like that. So when we moved around the world, we were treated as we were the sort of the kingpins that gave these other people their jobs. So when I finally left and came to Australia, um, I actually went to Africa <laughs> first because my then husband was very, very ill and he had been uh, a creative director of Ogilvy and Mather in of all places, Kenya. I heard this, and didn't Michael Ball come and yes. do a do a Yeah, a he did a bit of a number, yes. Yes, he did that a bit, didn't <laughs> yeah, he? Yeah, he did that. Uh, yeah. For those that don't know, Michael Ball was a, sort of an Australian advertising um, executive who went global very early, one of the early pioneers and, and sort of grew the Ogilvy Network, I think, Faye, was what, what he was famous for yes. before WPP and all that stuff happened. But anyway, I digress. I want to ask both of you, before we get to Warren's observations on this, is um, you're both robust. What would you say to your to to women that are coming through the system now and how to and and how to deal with that? And I might start with you, Sarah, first. What, what's is is there a way through? I think so. I think um I think the world is becoming more aware of the imbalance of of men in power, and it's not just in advertising. I think advertising is a metaphor and a reflection of what's happening in the general world affairs, from politics to um, economics to business. So, um, I would say that um. Building awareness, like doing whatever you can and fighting from within. We we tried it um, at, I think it was at JWT, uh, where we had a women's group that were, were trying to come together as in solidarity to see how they could help each other, you know, be heard louder. And I think one of the things that we worked out was in meetings, oft, oftentimes um, you'd say something and then another man, a man would say the same thing, but slightly differently. And everyone would go, oh, yes, that's a brilliant right. idea, brilliant idea. Right. And it's, kind of like, it's like that old FedEx hat, you know, but I said that. So we encourage women when women speak in meetings for other women in the meetings to go, oh, thank you, Faye, what a, what a great idea. Yes, I was thinking about. So just to try and change the 
the systemic sort of male voice that seems to be everywhere and allow women to be heard because we're a bit quieter, you know, we're, we are different beings. So we just need that little bit of extra help. So I think women being together in solidarity, helping other women would go a long way to helping. I'll ask Faye in a second, but I do have to ask you, Sarah, on, on Faye's point about um, today was as Faye is the co-creator, let's call her the co-creator of, of Singapore Girl, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't land now. Um, what's your take when you were in the 90s? Singapore Girl was everywhere in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And, and, and you know, what's your, what was your view on Singapore Girl then and now? Do you feel like it would be inappropriate? Sorry to have to ask you the hard <laughs> curly okay. question. No, Singapore Girl, you're a great way to fly. I mean, we used to snigger about that line. Right. <laughs> so, yes, from, from pro- I mean, probably in Asia, it probably didn't have that other <laughs> level of meaning. And, color. Right. and of course, being Australians, you'd always find the darker side of something. And the Brits, I'm sure, also would have laughed a little bit at that. Well, interesting, it's interesting <laughs> you say that, though, because probably from a creative and an advertising purist context, I can see what you're talking about. Like, gee, it landed with the punters. Oh, it God. worked, you Brilliant. know. And Brilliant. it wasn't, and it probably wasn't yeah. used in the, in the mm. sort of pejorative terms of maybe what the industry did. But so it, mm. it landed, but now. Um, Possibly, yes, it would get shot down from yes. a political correctness perspective. And uh, so, quickly, Faye, before we get to uh, to, to Warren, what what would be your advice to, to to women coming through the chain now? And we'll fast track a little bit. I'll just uh, a bit of a um, heads up in that you know when you launched uh, DDI AdWorks and your own agency, you did have a policy of really hiring very different people and lots of women. Yes, I felt that the skew on female products, and I'm talking about not not only personal hygiene style of products, but but uh, luxury goods, uh, fashion, skincare, all of those sorts of things, um, they weren't being looked at in the way in which would be uh, accepted by women. They were, because they were written by men, uh, especially when you look at the feminine hygiene, it was just so ludicrous. And I was sitting at meetings sometimes and watching men discussing personal feminine hygiene and are thinking, why are they even trying to bother? <laughs> they don't even know what it's all about. Right. So there were things like that. I just thought this has got to change. Right. So it wasn't so much about hiring female people but trying to get the industry to look at a different way of communicating with women. And more relatable. And a more relatable mm. and always based on an emotional premise because no one's bored into buying anything and nobody buys anything unless they have an emotional need first. Mm. So like-minded souls came to see me because they wanted to be part of that. And I think if I was uh, giving anybody um, a a, a, a steering them in a certain direction is do your homework on how you feel about the people you are approaching so that if you do get knocked back, you you can fight for why you are being not back because you've done your homework as to why you want to right. be there and what you can bring to the table. And a lot of people just want a job in advertising. And, of course, sometimes the fit doesn't work. Right. So it's not so much that they've been knocked back because they're a woman so much as they were just wrong for the, for that particular place and pet, even for the, for the work that they may have had to do. In their desperation to get in, then they get knocked back and then it sort of snowballs from there. So I found that if you do your homework first and you really have some sort of affinity with the place that you want to go to, to, to work there and the people that you want to work with, you've got a much better chance 
of being accepted because you've got you're starting off on a platform of 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 uh, let's call it connection. Yes, yes, let's call it connection. Is that okay? Well, that's a journo That'll talking do. there. You're, that's not very creative. I'm sorry. Very quickly, because Sarah's smiling at some of your your anecdotes there. Um, the the when you started your agency. Uh, in the late eighties, yes, um, eighty seven, eighty eight, I think, yes. if that's right. Um, so the early, the early foundation clients that are around that were Alabasha. Who else was in that in that that portfolio or in um, your portfolio? Well, uh, one of the uh, people who was on the board. Of, I did a, a stint at SSC and B Lintas, right, and was on the board there. And one another board member was Julia King, who became the CEO yes. of of Louis Vuitton. And so she hunted me down and said. Gave me her business. Right. Um, the I got Ella Bashath because I had worked with the marketing director, who was also a female. Um, prior to that, when she ha- ran a shoe retailer, so there was a sort of an affiliation. And then we got George Jensen, which was the first agency outside of the Sc- of Scandinavia to do creative work for George Jensen wow, right. and Oriforce Korsterboda. And so it went on. So we had a, a wonderful bevy of wonderful clients and they were all like-minded and they were all f- fabulous. And most of them were women, the actual clients. The clients were, were yeah. yeah. And and I might get in trouble here because I think someone told me that you were the first w- woman to start an agency in Australia. Is that, am yeah. I borderline on that? No, you're pretty well. I think, I think that the first became because I had a film production arm as well. Right, And okay. that became unique. Got it. Now, Sarah, you were smiling earlier um, about 10 minutes ago, but it was a very funny anecdote. What have you got? Um, Warren has to go. Do yeah, yeah, no, no. Okay. So we, I'm go, oh, I will. Okay. Um, I was just <laughs> laughing because um, some of my finest work has been done for feminine hygiene. So across, <laughs> Procter and Gamble, across I guess my so. three decades in the industry, and I, I remember one of the ads that we did in Australia had a woman mopping up uh, what looked like it could be water or blood on the floor as she dumped a man's body down a chute um, for Libra Fleur, um, like the absorption, how good it was. And I remember showing some of the Americans because I worked on you by Kotex in the US um, and they were just aghast that anything like that could happen on, on, television. on television. They were still doing um, blue liquid and women twirling in white skirts, which we had rather a lovely time taking the piss out and of and did some amazing work that got very well awarded and dragged uh, dragged the American market kicking and screaming into the 2000s. <laughs> How hard was that? Um, I had a great client. Again, the the ads that you do are only as good as the clients that are brave enough to hold your hand. And and they, I had this great uh, client who designed, helped design the packs, which were black. Like this is this is like the land of pastel pink turned on its head. So mm-hmm. these were black packs of tampons and pads. And he said, Sarah, I want you to piss off the the right wing and perhaps the church. And I said, I'm your girl. Uh, yes, let and, me at it. And we did. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> now, to your point, Sarah, Warren Brown, you've listened to the, the queens of the screen and beyond and, uh, you know, your colleagues in the, in the Hall of Fame talk about their experience over their career. Before we get to some of the other stuff, what's your observations uh, around women in the industry? And um, you've got, you made a good point um, in a conversation last week where you felt that Australia and US and UK are quite different uh, in, in, that, in that regard. Just talk us through your observations, though. Well, I um, wanted to start my career um, in the UK. At the time, I thought the UK was the top. You know, they, they, they did all the best ads. They did the funniest ads and everything. So before I even started my career in Australia, I thought I'll just buy a ticket and go to the UK. So it was 
baptism by fire, I suppose. So you had no experience in, no in, experience. in, in advertising in Australia? I didn't, I didn't know anyone. I did, didn't have a job. Did award school? No, I didn't do that. Crikey. I had a design. What are you good for? I did design. I did Swinburne school. So I did right. Swinburne. Right, yes, okay, that's right. But yes. I sold my, I had a little Corolla panel van, so I sold that. And I got enough money to get to the UK, and I just started- 80-something, two? 1980. 80. So I started banging on doors and just trying, but I didn't know any other Australians in advertising, so that was a bit weird. Anyway, I um, I, I bought I, my book. I did have a book. I did some ads. Anyway, I showed some people um, my book, and apparently <laughs> it was rubbish. So I, I threw it all in the bin, and I went and bought some pads and some markers, and just started walking around and saying, I could do that, do that ad. And then I just see what what um, what clients, you know, what would be good to work on. So I did that. And so I just do 10 ads or 10 campaigns um, a week, just kept recycling them and doing better and better and better. And um, I got down to my last 30 pounds because I used to live off um, leftovers and stuff like that. And I lived off um, Guinness and chips for about six months. Anyway, um, I thought I was getting pretty desperate by that stage, 30 quid left, sitting on a Friday afternoon, and um, I finally got a job that Friday afternoon. So anyway, it all um, it got me my leg up, so I didn't starve, fortunately, and I didn't have to eat much, so um, save money that way. But anyway, I, um, I just started my career there, and I fortunately only worked with the best. That's all I wanted to do was work with the best. So it's, it's really hard to... Uh, fail at the bottom and it's really hard to um, and uh, do well at the top. So what's the difference? So I thought I'll just start at the top so um, and see if I can just hang on, which I did and I could basically blag my way in or whatever. But I stayed there for 13 years and um, I managed to build a career from pretty much nothing, from knowing nothing to maybe knowing a little bit more. But the best thing that it did school me was when I worked with, um, uh, there's a lot of women in the UK uh, in advertising. And I thought, this is fabulous. They're actually, they're smart. They're, they're sort of, they're really well turned out. Everyone was, it was a brilliant sort of environment to be in. So I had to polish myself, smarten myself up a bit really. But, um, I worked with, uh, Barbara Noakes for about four years at, at um, Bartle Bogle Hegarty. And so for me, working with, uh, women in that environment all the time, for me, it was, was fantastic and it was fun. And, and it smart. was a bit normal perhaps, was it? Not that the women weren't normal. It was the fact there was a normal working environment, I should normal, say. Normal working, yeah. yeah. And we worked in Soho. It was absolutely humming in the 80s and it was absolutely fantastic. So my career really was all um, working in that environment. And when I came back to Australia, it was very, very different. And um, I was a bit shocked, really. I wasn't sure what, um, how to adjust. And I thought, how am I going to adjust this environment because I'm so, and I thought maybe I should go back to London because that's what I'm used to now after working there for 13 years. So I thought the best thing to do after about three years, I was determined to start my agency because I wanted to replicate that environment because I was used to having lots of smart women in the company and in creatives, account service, clients, most of the clients are women. So I basically, that's what I tried to do as best I could was to recreate that UK experience in Australia. With BMF. With BMF, mm. correct. Great. Well, um, we, we, we'll circle back to that because we could easily spend hours on this one, but I've got, to, I've got to traverse three big careers over, you know, collectively 300 years, uh, and it's a big task. So stay with me for a moment, but I just want to, um, I want to come back to some of the anecdotes you talked about, uh, Warren, 
But firstly, uh, let's get to a couple of the craziest stories in your career because those ones, um, you know, just for fun and banter, um, I think it's worth worth listening to a to listening to a few. And, and Faye, your your first one. We've talked about Singapore Airlines. Um, as legend has it, and you're about to. I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm about to find out. But as legend has it, you may have, or some of your colleagues may have thought at one stage when you're doing a campaign in London that you may have absconded with the Singapore Airlines photographer to Paris and there was no campaign. True or false? One bit's true, one bit is definitely false. Damn. (laughs) Let's let's guess. (laughs) Um, The the no campaign part is true. Um, We had employed a very famous photographer, one of the top three in the world, and he had come all the way to Singapore to shoot a campaign on a live plane, which cost a million dollars a day to Back ground. Back then? Yes. Crikey. And um, <laughs> so, unfortunately, when I went to London to collect all the work um, and with the help of, a, uh, of a, uh, an agency or a facility, which was run by Jeff Chandler, whom you may yes. or remember, wonderful man that he was. Um, I was meant to get the duplicates that were ne- needed for placement in various media around the country, around uh, uh, Paris, London, uh, Germany, whatever. Anyway, when I arrived, the photographers were meant to be meeting me at the airport and he didn't show. So <laughs> his assistant came instead. So when I asked where he was, he said, oh, he's uh, been... Unfortunately, detained in Paris, and I said, "Oh well, that's all right. I'll see you in the studio in the morning and collect the pictures and everything." I thought he looked a bit glum, and um, this is the assistant. Yes, in fact, he looked decidedly glum. So I had travelled, you know, it took twenty four hours to get to London in those days. Yes. So the next morning, I went to the studio and um, was faced with the fact that only half the frame on all the reels and reels and reels of footage that we'd shot had come out. So he had tried to say that had gone through um, the x-ray machine and that therefore that somehow had damaged half of the frames on all the footage. And I had found out that's not true. And what had happened is that his assistant that he had brought out had failed to synchronise the shutter with the flash. On one side, and so we only got half a frame. So what happened? So I had to then try and reshoot a ca- that campaign with no money, and in London during the OPEC disaster, which meant there was only three days of. That was the late seventies, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and find a photographer who would do it, and a plane, and a plane, and not tell Mr. Beatty. Not so tell th- the boss. No. <laughs> And the reason why they thought I'd absconded with the photographer is every time they tried to reach me, they had realised that the photographer that I was meant to be meeting was in Paris. So they immediately assumed that they couldn't get hold of me, that I was in Paris with him. Being romantic. Yes. Um, And so you made made up a plane? Yes. We built a plane out of parts from J. Arthur Rank in a studio in Frith Street and shot with a photographer that whose work looked like Helmut Newton, certainly not like Sarah Moon, that was the photographer that we were sort of emulating at that time. And the only reason why Mr Chandler had managed to get all these photographers with their books who swarmed into this place when they realised that I was looking for someone, clandestine way at that time, to try and find someone who would shoot this 
before I could get, I knew I could get hosties because they were all overnighted. And, right. And I knew I could do all of that. So this is, <laughs> I don't, can't imagine anybody doing anything that, like that now. No. I mean, and you didn't get busted? No. You got away with it. Well, the, I got away with it with the client. Of course, it didn't get away with it with Ian. Right. But once I had realised that I'd set it all up and knew that I could actually shoot it, and this wonderful woman had come in and she said, I believe you have got a bit of a problem, Faye. And I said, <laughs> she said, she said, well, she said, I know you've been seeing lots of lovely photographers. My photographer's name is Johnny, and I know he's not sort of your sort of photographer, but I can get you a plane. <laughs> so you what did you take the photographer around the plane? Yes, you did. That was yes. a trade off, and yes, it worked. Well <laughs> done, great story, Sarah. What, did, what can you match that one? <laughs> Mine is more of a you know like a, a fun fact, something that I was lucky enough to uh, experience, and that was um, I was invited to the uh, Saatchi Creative Board meeting, which was held in Rome. And uh, not only did that's the we global, get, that's the global crew, the global like creative, creative board, yes. Yeah. Well, I was at Sarchi's in New York, and not only were we invited to a private dinner at the Castello Sant'Angelo, um, all candles and beautiful food for you know probably twenty of us. Um, we also got a private viewing of the Sistine Chapel and the Vatican. And how did we do that? Yes, how did you do that? We had the papal account. <laughs> no way. Yeah, we had the Pope on side, so yes. <laughs> Great one. So that was a pretty fabulous thing. And another, um, another wonderful experience was when I was again at Saatchi and we pitched for the Air Tahiti Nui account and they were introducing direct flights from uh, New York direct to Tahiti. And uh, not only did we win the account, but we got to go to Tahiti for meetings. And, of course, New York to Tahiti and then Tahiti to Sydney was the quickest way of getting back to Australia. So it was a, a win-win on so right, many levels. Because the stopovers were in Tahiti, weren't they? Yeah, you didn't have to stop in um, in LA. You just went straight from New York to Papieto. Tell me, what is the, what are the papal briefs read like? The papal briefs? Oh, like any other brief. They were the same, were they? Just, <laughs> yeah. just, just bog standard. Yeah, Nothing bog special. standard, no. <laughs> Warren Brown. Um, you know, the, you... I could do this for about three yes, hours. Yes, <laughs> that's where I was going to go exactly. Anyway, I've got a, I've got a Brad Pitt story. Let's go, Brad Pitt story. Mainly because my wife will love it. Okay, okay, because because <laughs> everyone likes a story about um, Brad Pitt. Anyway, I was doing a Levi's ad, and down in um, southern of uh, California, down near the Mexican border, and we were there doing a, an ad, Levi's ad with um, Brad Pitt and a Brazilian model. Anyway, just the year? down. With a year, what was that, uh, when was that, 90 uh, was that sometime? 91, I think. 91, right. 91. He'd just done, um, or he's about to do Thelma, uh, Thelma Louise. Right. So okay. anyway, so we thought, oh, great. It's out in the middle of nowhere, by the way. And there's Edwards, Edwards Base Force, Edwards Force Base, where all the jets are, all the top guns are down there. That's where all the, you know, the, the top pilots. And there's a really crappy bar down there called Irma's Bar, but all the pilots used to go there and we go playing pool and all the rest of it. So we'd every night on the shoot, we'd, we'd just go there and we'd drink lots of beer and eat lots of beans and all the rest of it. And so Brad's scene the next morning, he was doing a, um, a, a kissing Brazilian sort of thing for, for the ad. Anyway, so... <laughs> oh, on the ad. This is one. On the ad, wasn't the ad. Breakfast. So, so, they, so they've set it all up. No, this is nothing going on. So it's all, all in the set. So I thought, well, I don't have to get up too early to watch him, you know, Brad kiss a Brazilian, you know, model. But that's... You know, I don't know. I don't need to see that. So anyway, I I slept in a little bit, but I got got up and walked across the set, and I must have been about I don't know a hundred meters from the set, 
Anyway, I had a bit of a, a rumble going on in my um, down in my nether region. There was a bit of a rumble going on. I thought, oh, I'm pretty safe. No one's going to hear anything out here. And then, unfortunately, there was a, a lather trumpet came out my bum and it deafened and echoed right across the set and Brad stopped mid-shot. Whoa, what's that? And then the Brazilian screamed, ah, like that, and all the crew are going, what are you doing? What's go- what happened? What happened? And, and it broke up the whole set. And I thought, oh, God, that was embarrassing. And the producer was screaming, oh, Warren, you're disgusting. You're awful, all the rest of it. Anyway, so we broke from the set and we went up to, I went up to Brad afterwards. I said, oh, Brad, I'm really sorry about, you know, spoiling the shot. And he said, you know, he said, I was a bit nervous about doing this ad. I wasn't sure about it. But he said, when I heard you fart... I'm home. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right, so he Actually, he's just a country boy. And so we got on really fabulously well so, after that. So, <laughs> so you, you broke the ice, so it to speak. broke the ice. That was an icebreaker in, in many ways. But anyway, but he's a lovely guy. And we, had, we used to fly around in, in private planes. And anyway, he was, we had a great time with Brad. But anyway, that was, that was, um, that was an icebreaker that, um, yes. Remains. Now Remains, it's in the yes. history books. In the public. Absolutely, it's on this, in the, yes. it's in, We could say in the annals of history. I've done Warren. so many stupid things in my life and things that went wrong, but that's just a quick one. Fascinating conversation. Let's get to some of your work. Um, maybe uh, some standouts from each of you on, uh, on on what still resonates for you today and why. And uh, Warren, give us, give us your start with you. Well, I just come back um, to Australia because I was homesick more than anything else. So I wanted to go back to Australia and um, the AFL um, client was with the Campaign Palace. Anyway, the CEO of Campaign Palace said, don't waste your time with uh, AFL. They're a waste of space. They haven't got any money. And uh, I think it was Melbourne agency. They had the account. And I said, well, I'll pitch for it. And they said, he said, no, nah, don't bother with that. Forget it. It's a waste of time. So I thought, well, I'll do it anyway. So I, I did a script and I sent it down to Melbourne and um, they said, all right, we might as well chuck it in, but, you know, forget it. You know, it'll never, never come of anything. Anyway, they pitched about 12 agencies and uh, my script won. They said, no, we want to do that. So I won the pitch. And then- For the palace. For the palace. Because I was living in, I was working in Sydney, but that was, was, I didn't even have the agency. So anyway, so I thought that, that was okay. So I had the script and then nothing happened for a while. And then Carl Lewis- just happened to be in Melbourne, and they said, um, "Why don't you shoot one the, of those this segments?" This is the fast. This is the AFL. world's fastest man. Yeah, run flat out. You know, although but I'd like to see that. Was the, sorry, I should have told you that. I'd like to see that. Was basically like these sportsmen are amazing. They're unbelievable. You know, I'd like to see that. Like really, and um, and then the AFL would. Uh, I'd like to see that, and then we'll show them the athletes. The Aussie Rules players were unbelievable. So that was the whole idea. Anyway, so the um, so I got Carl Lewis, and uh, we didn't have a director, didn't have um, set, nothing. So I thought, oh well. So I just did a, a backdrop, had it painted down in Melbourne, and so I flew down and six o'clock the next morning, I did with Carl Lewis, and filmed him, and he was really good. Had his shirt off and everything. He looked very cut, whatever, and um, looked really good. So we did a few lines, and he was okay. He was really helpful, and uh, the paint was still wet on the backdrop. Right. And then um, nothing happened again for about another couple of months. And then in the end they said, we need some more of those stars. What are they, What other stars do you want to use? So I just started writing all my 
all the superstars. All the ones you wanted. Yeah, or that I wanted to meet. I wanted yeah. to meet all the best people. So I, then suddenly I, <laughs> I had my backdrop and I rolled it up into a big tube and I carted that around America, the UK and everywhere and, and, and directed all these um, ads and put it all together and I had a track that I wanted and um, unbelievable and uh, it just all dropped into place. And then so I did the ad and it ran and then the next day within hours, um, I think it was a deputy of uh, the PM said, um, a politician, I'd like to see that. Right. And it sort of went into the vernacular within hours. Yes. And it just, people still use it. And that's in 1994, I think it was. And so that, for me, never give up. So I was never, I'd pretty much all by myself and had help, obviously, with a nice producer and all the rest of it and uh, good collaboration with uh, the Americans and their sports stars and all the rest of it because everyone wants to support Aussie rules. Right. So suddenly it was... Yeah, it just took off. And 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 you you would have been, it would have been still a bit novel then too as an Australian in in, in the well, US. Well, I was the only that. I was the only Australian that could I'd played Aussie Rules. Right. Oh, you I, knew I, it. I, I, in Melbourne, I'd grew up in Melbourne, and I'd I'd played Aussie Rules for, and even won a premiership under under fifteens. I might have. <laughs> yes. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so no one else in the agency at Campbell Palace had played Aussie Rules. They didn't know anything about it. So I thought, all right. And so it went from a little account that no one wanted to touch would have anything to do with. And suddenly I'm, I'm directing a million dollar, um, ads. And, and then I got to meet, um, celebrities as well. And that was a hell of a lot of fun. Great ride. Sarah, tell us about some of your interesting ones on the work, the standouts and why. Um, it was interesting hearing Warren talk about things going into the vernacular of the Australian kind of population. And I think one of the ones that um, I was lucky enough to work on also did that, and it was for the Yellow Pages Not Happy Jam. Yes. And I know people still kind of say what that. What year was it again? That was probably the last ad I did in Australia before leaving, so maybe in like 1999. Extraordinary. Even, even I've got a, you know, uh, disclosure, I've got a 20-year-old. He, he, I don't know where he gets it from, but he yeah. uses it. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's crazy, there. Yeah. yeah. So that um, is memorable. And, of course, I mean, Ant's Pants, which is the yeah the one that, you know, we did at the palace that um, – and back then pre-CGI, so we actually had to tape ants to some um, fishing line in a triangle and had an ant wrangler sitting um, underneath the bed. An ant wrangler. Underneath Tonya Bird, who we all know was the fabulous woman in it, um, trying to make this the ants that we threw onto Tonya follow the little triangle of fishing wire with dead glued ants. Yes, there was no member of the RSPCA there. <laughs> yes, it didn't matter. That one made you famous, too. That was your first early fame, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that was. Yeah. yeah. And it worked. Yeah, it actually was written up as not only, well, not only did it win loads of awards, it actually was a marketing success. And so the knickers, you know. Sold themselves, as it were. Yes. And then they made another one, and it was actually one of the women who um, has moved to the States who I kind of mentored for a while. Um, she made a second iteration of it 10 years later. So it had that kind of traction that they even thought to do a remake, a, a different story, but around ants and women and stuff. So um, Not Happy Jan and, and Ants, 90-somethings, um, did it get harder to do that stuff when we talk about getting into culture? And that's always sort of the North Star for a lot of um, advertising and creatives and marketers really to get into culture. Did it get harder to do that, you know, uh, further into the, the noughties? Um, 
well, then I'd moved to the US mm. and everything was a bit harder there. Right. <laughs> but um, I think like, as I was saying before with um, some of the feminine hygiene stuff, there's this great uh, example of a, an ad that I had in my bottom drawer that I always wanted to use. And I used to show my clients in the US um, and unfortunately never, ever made it to a poster. But the, the line was, if this ever happens to you, see your doctor at once. And on the other side of the page was a pad with blue liquid. I was so aghast that people were still showing blue rather than red for something that happens to 50% of the population. So Turning it on its head. Yeah, and so being part of that cultural shift was was fabulous and and very proud of, of the work that we did on, on that account. Faye, um, your standouts, what, what apart from the, you've already given a great one with a, with a you know, frolicking off to Paris with a photographer, not, but um, standout work. Um, what, what do you sort of recall as your, as your, as your stuff that you'd kind of go, that one or this one? I've got a son who is a professional fisherman and being a bloke, he didn't seem to look after his skin very well and to try and get him to use uh, suntan lotion uh, or sunscreen was impossible. And uh, any anyway, opportunity arose when Ella Bachet had an, a, a new 50 plus, or I think initially it started as 30 plus, sunscreen. And I thought it would be excellent to try and aim that to men so that women would buy it for the men because I knew men probably wouldn't purchase it. And uh, for some unbelievable reason, I decided to use the swans and uh, take their clothes off. And the line was protect your largest organ because nobody knew in those days that the largest organ of your body was your skin. Skin, yes. So they held judiciously paced mock-ups of the product in front of them and the shoot was with Gary Heary, who was a perfect photographer for that sort of job. And um, I was allowed to choose the, the members for this particular ad by sitting in the stand with binoculars and saying, number 12. Is that right? <laughs> number six. <laughs> yes. So anyway, they all came flooding along to the studio and there was one young boy whose name was Troy Crook and he was Aborigine descent, so he was beautifully tanned and the rest of them were a little bit pale. So I had this makeup artist who had to try and tint the skin of these boys so that they all looked exactly the same. It was the funniest shoot I have ever been on, as if their private parts were sort of shifted to the left and to the right to accommodate (laughs) this woman with her little sponge. And the ad became a poster, which was then used at the game. It sold out, and my son has never stopped using sunscreen ever since, and so a lot of sports people have used it. In fact, it upped the ante of selling to, to males to look after their skin. By some, I can't remember what the percentage was, but it was absolutely phenomenal. Great story. And that was when? Uh, that would have been in the late 90s. And the second one, which in actual fact was the first, was using the Gypsy Kings to promote a new magazine, which... Just was just nothing but music and and incredibly joyous behaviour to this extraordinary soundtrack that nobody had actually heard of, 
And so they, had, they hadn't busted open the no, world no, by that no, time. They were they early had, It was before. Undiscovered, right. And I actually knew somebody who knew the band and they got hold of them in France and see if I could use it for the soundtrack, which I did and I paid £5,000 or $5,000. What was the magazine? It was New Woman. Great stories. Um, what about this, Warren? What's happened to advertising? There's, there's now. I want to, I want to post something to you. There's, there is at least a rhetorical return to creativity at the moment. What, what I've seen. This is, this is. You're looking at me strangely already. It's a bit worrying, but nevertheless, I'll explain. You've got lots of marketers and lots of media people now doing econometric and, and media mix modelling, trying to work out which channels work. There's a, there's a whole media conversation in tech that's taken over the narrative in, in the industry in, to, to a certain degree. But what they're discovering now, the science is funnily enough telling them. Uh, that creativity and the creative message accounts for 50, 60, 70% of the impact and efficacy, effectiveness of an ad. And so suddenly the technicians and the data scientists and all those technical people are going, shit, creativity is actually the differentiator here, something that you guys have known for, you know, a thousand years. So um, what you're seeing is this sort of marketers and, and broader industry saying creative is really important. But I want to know what at this stage from your observations from a distance has happened to advertising in the advertising industry. What are your what are your sort of top line observations on what's happened to the well, business? Back in the day, we used to start with a nugget, and it didn't really matter how the nugget was presented. You know, you just have to make sure you got a really that was gold. That was your nugget, and then we were pretty much left alone in the early years. Clients would trust us and all the rest of it. So this nugget, and we'd embellish it and work it up, what have you. So we had. It was um, it was our domain, if if you would like. But as as the the, indus- the industry changed, because everyone became really good and smarter at everything else, so everyone thought they had the nugget. But really, really smart, creative people have the nugget. But um, media and everyone else, they have different. You know, they they try and embellish it. But really, without a nugget, you can't do anything. Really, so it just ends up being wallpaper. So I think everyone's become experts in every single department, it would have been better if they just stuck with trying to find what that primacy of that gold nugget is a thing. And, and you can play with that and do whatever. You can't kill it if it's a really good one. And uh, you can change it, do whatever you like with it. And But people have forgotten that, I think. Mm. And I think the industry has got more excited about, um, I don't know, wallpapering over something that should be really pretty good and just being buried or dismissed or whatever. And most of the best ideas are very, very fragile. And in my experience, the best work that I've ever been uh, created or been involved in, most invariably they hate it. No one likes anything new and different. It never happens, but you have to trust it, have to persevere with it, and you have to need just, you know, get a couple of other people to sort of gather your army to sort of support these fragile little bits of creativity because it's too easy to squash uh, or, or damn that sort of uh, what should have been really good into something absolutely brilliant. But there are too many experts now, I think, and we, we don't really – we get lost, I think, and um, it's, it's a really simple business, really basic. You just need a really good idea that's relevant, interesting, arouses a bit of curiosity and uh, embrace every department of risk in it because that will help you uh, push it and make it interesting and people will stick stick with it. So that's what I believe anyway. That's that's what I think. So, look, it will change. We can't get bored with watching crap for much longer. Here's hoping, actually. Um, Sarah, what are your thoughts? 
Well, coming back after being away for 20 years, um, I think I was a little aghast at some of the things I did see when I'm not racing for the mute button. <laughs> um, and for me, it just looked like things have gone backwards. So, In Australia, uh, in yeah? In Australia, yeah. But um, right. I, I'm not a big consumer of commercial television if that's kind of what we're mainly looking at. And I hate any ads that come up in any sort of feed that – I'm scrolling down on my... Well, I was going to say, my, even the social feeds yeah, or the exactly. online... Yeah, I mean, I, I just can't believe that people are still working out that a creative idea is actually what's going to make people interested and, and you know, look at their product or service, you know. I mean, it, it's been that way forever it, it, and it, we had effectiveness back then, but it wasn't actually called effective, effectiveness. It was that if the product or the service sold. So it's not like it's a, you know, a light bulb moment. It's always been that... People will take notice of something that that interests them or intrigues them, as as uh, um, Warren was saying. So, um, yeah, I lament that um, maybe it hasn't, you know, moved forward. I also think that the reliance on technology is something that possibly is um, keeping creativity back a little bit. I used to watch um, the teams come to me with ideas in. And I was working in the States and, and they would have mocked up something completely to a, almost a finished, you know, piece of uh, work. And I would say, you're not allowed to do that. You just have to get a pen and a piece of paper and do it as a little scribble because you spent all that time getting something to a, a, a beautiful stage. And I, you know, I don't like the, or don't think the idea is right. So again, that reliance on and that defaulting to turning to their apparatus of choice um, to convey something, I think, has its limitations. I mean, the creative mind is limitless, but technology has limitations. So that's mm. also an observation I think is, is worth. You know. So that's an advertising. Do you see, you know, the same challenges in Hollywood, for instance, feature films, or do you think it's there's a distinctive or there's a difference um, of what's happening in, in, in the advertising world for what you see in, in, in uh, feature films, for instance, or even television shows? I mean, everything's driven by by money and bums on seats or clicks on boards, and and so I think the problem with advertising that I can see that has changed over the years is that the the <laughs> the economists, the money men, have won, and I think people are much more risk averse. Did you see risk? Did you see risk um, aversion um, escalate uh, towards the end of your career versus what was happening mid or early, or was it just about the people? I think there was much less risk in um, a risk averseness in Australia before I left. And I think um, research companies just hadn't come to the fore and I wish I'd invested in those a long time ago because everyone defaults, especially from my experience in the States, everyone defaults to the researchers. And, of course, you can research an idea out of being a gold nugget to a piece of shit. And let's go go to the previous century because even I remember um, and on that research stuff, and you might have an anecdote as well, is that, you know, the, the, the infamous one is the go-go mobile, right? It, mm-hmm. it went to research and it said, no, you need to use not a go-go mobile. You need to use mm-hmm. um, a Ford Falcon or, a, or mm-hmm. a Holden Commodore because that's what reason. That's what the middle Australia mm-hmm. drives resonate with them. So the only reason it didn't happen, I can't recall who was behind that, but it, it, they they punched it through anyway. And of course, go-go mobile ended up being another, you know, uh, not happy Jan, if you like. As did the same with um, 1984, the Apple commercial. They did research it and it bombed, and they right they ran it anyway. And, and look, look at that. History has yeah. written. Did you have that? Did you hit that yourself? You know, where you where research, you know, crimped you. Oh the, God, yeah. Mm. Oh hated it. <laughs> mm. I'm not going to name names, are you, Sarah Barclay? Uh-uh. No, damn it. That's uh-uh. that's for just before your 
go to the next world. I will make sure we have a, that conversation. Faye, what about you? Um, you know, everything we've just talked about in terms of what's happened to advertising. You're a bit social though, aren't you? You've got a, you've got a sort of a, um, a project, a book project where you're taking amazing shots around the world, photos, and you do use sort of social for your feeds for that, but that's not really advertising. That's your, that's your creative work. Advertising, um, what do you make of it? Well, very little, hmm. <laughs> to be blunt. Um, I think that uh, it's probably very difficult to um, comprehend the lack of budgets, which we always believed was necessary to do a really good job. You had to have the equivalent amount of money. It didn't necessarily mean it had to be a lot, but it had to be the right amount of money to be able to produce what you foresaw as being the piece of work that was going to work. Um, I think that uh, the idea of having half a million dollars to make a television commercial today would it just wouldn't it wouldn't happen. Mm. Um, you can see that on the screen. Everything that you see is very low rent. It hasn't got the polish, and that is probably to do with money. And as Sarah said, you know, money is dictated often by big business and big business is mainly men. And so the demise of advertising as such has, is a direct result of that, I think. Um, it, and I think it's uh, the other thing is the political correctness that has crept into every aspect of our life, of course, comes into communication. I mean, we mentioned before that you would probably never be able to use Singapore Girl or even create a campaign with rightly or wrongly along those lines now. Uh, but it's not just that sort of thing. It's everything. Uh, and then there's that sort of gratuitous pop, popping a black person in or an Aboriginal person in or a Chinese person. I find that all of these things I find are extremely distasteful and, and obviously have been given rules from above or sideways or wherever and I think that it, it, it's it's the demise of the of the industry is because of those those elements. What about craft, um, you Hall of Famers? Um, does it really matter today? It might point a little bit back to what um, Warren was talking earlier about and sort of nuggets, and you and you were all sort of pointing to that really. But craft, Warren, um, let's go to you. Does it make a difference? I think craft is absolutely um, critical. Can make you can't if you've got something really really good, you can. Um, do an ordinary job, but still get by. But honestly, what really empowers your thought or your idea, you really do help it a lot with uh, the right level of um, craft. And when you say craft, I mean crafting is editing. Edit, edit, edit. Don't keep chucking more stuff at it. Just edit, edit, edit. So the craft is to edit as much as you possibly can and leaves uh, the idea to breathe and blossom and what have you. So I think craft is not something, uh, it's not adding, you know. Can you think of an anecdote of exactly what you're talking about there in your, in your career of where, you know, the edit, edit, craft, craft, cut down, don't add, you know, is there an ex a fast example you can think of? Well, I did, I did a, a poster campaign for um, Swan Vestas, big poster campaign, and it was really, really um, uh, Britain's favourite old flames, which was black and white photos that I did. That nearly died as well anyway, but I, I did that and I had, I thought, well, don't try and muck this up, but all I have to do is a black and white picture, a coloured pack, which is yellow, red, green. And I did the, had the type done, just all I had to do, a little bit of a key line. 
what I had to do then, I had 7,000 photos to pour over the Cobol collection for all the Hollywood um, photographers. And I just had to pick the right ones, the ones that really, 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 really worked. So the craft really comes into making sure that everything has to be absolutely perfect, but it don't, there's nothing gratuitous or anything there. Everything just had to be right. So I'd shoot like a hand holding a box of matches. I'd reshoot the hand three, from three different hand models just to get the right one. But you had to get, that. that's the sort of craft, but when you look at it, the enormous amount of work goes into it to making it look that simple. Yeah, right. When I was talking to the CMO at ANZ Bank a few months ago, she was talking about how with agencies, um, though it was about the in-housing trend. So sort of, you know, you guys would have seen that go in and out and it just goes around in a cycle. But at the moment, everyone's sort of starting to look at cost. And she said, you know, when I'm paying $5,000 for a social media post that my son could do faster and cheaper, it's uh, instructive for me to go, we have to do this differently. We have to do it better in, in inverted quotes. But her point was that, you know, at $5,000, a social media post that was that was to, beyond what she thought the value was in, in the output of that. Now, this is kind of when you talk about polish and craft and so forth, the, the criticism um, historically to creatives and creative agencies has been that there is this great attention to detail. There's a great attention to the polish and the fine ends, fine ends of it, as well as the idea, of course. Uh, and it's too expensive, or they don't want to pay. So, what was, uh, what do you make of that? You know, that 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 sort of example I just gave about, you know, taking it off agencies because five grand a pop is 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 not value. Is is there anything in that, Sarah? I mean, you can't. You know, polish a turd, I think, is the... Um, I know, it's well well put. <laughs> you can't put lipstick, well, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's, it's still It doesn't carry, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think, um, you know, craft is, is brilliant and it should help great ideas be even better. But if you're just doing a social media post and it's costing $5,000, it's still just a social... I mean, I wouldn't spend $5,000 on that either. Mm. You, you know how fast people are flicking through mm. um, and most people are ADD anyway. I mean, you've got to make people stop and want to look at something and if, if they're not going to even stop and want to look, there's no point in making it pretty, mm. crafting it to excellence. Advertising today, are you watching any ads or you're watching the ABC and, and streaming ad-free streaming platforms? Um, Warren, what about you? Are you watching ads today? Are you interested in ads? Do you give a shit? Um, I'm interested in really the good ones, um, good ads. I, I like watching them, but I don't really watch a lot of commercial TV. No, that's not something, you know, I had a great time and good fun doing that. I, I worked on beer a lot, cars. Uh, clothing like Levi's and things like that and sport and all the rest of it. And I was very lucky to work on some great brands with great clients. But, um, you know, the world's changed a lot. So I think I always like the, seeing more of the big idea. So uh, I get excited seeing a big idea and it infects the entire population and everyone gets excited about it and they talk about it. I like seeing work that people talk about. And, and populist or populism for me is a big thing. So I love don't doing uh, ads for hairdressers or anything like that. The, the, I like stuff that's big. I want everyone to see it. I want to comment on it. I want to um, get excited about it. And for me, that's the sort of work that I really gets, gets my get. Faye, what are you, are you, are you looking at anything? SBS. SBS. Well, they have ads. And they have ads. Mm. Uh, there are a few, which fortunately they only ever show a few. Uh, commercial television interrupts programming with at least nine ads in a break, which is 
ridiculous, and especially when you know what the content of those ads usually are. Um, it just encourages you to get up and make the obligatory cup of tea. Um, so, yes, I find that ABC and SBS are my two. Sarah, are you watching any ads? <laughs> I mean, this is an, a generational thing too because I know that young people <laughs> don't even have <laughs> those young people fucking television There's monitors and yeah. they're not watching, they're not streaming, they're not paying for any streaming services. They're, you know, doing it all for free and doing and watching whatever the hell they want and I'm sure they're not watching, you know, seven ads in a row. That being said, when you think back to, I think Britain used to always have, um, and it's a sh- I'd like to ask Warren this, but Britain always used to have all the ads after um, the program, so or in between a program, and people would not go and make a cup of tea because they were so brilliant, and they, it would almost be like a mini, like half time show or full time show, and and that gets back to the the point that if if something is really good, you're not going to not watch it. You are going to stay and and be amused or surprised or whatever because because they're pieces of great film or if, if we're talking about television. So I think it just comes down to the content has to be interesting and that goes across whether it's a Netflix series or on SBS or anything or advertising. You know, it has to be good. We're wrapping this up, so let's just get a little fix on, on modern day. Um, what do your lives look like today? What are you doing today? What are you what what is going on in, in 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 three Hall of Famers' lives that are now outside advertising as we know it at least? Warren, what are you up to? And and let's talk to you know you've you've got some pretty big life events that happened to you too, by the way, in the recent years. Well, I did a creative um, leadership course. I created this course, and because um, I wanted to make the um, schooling um, creative people who wanted to be creative directors, and no one teaches you how to do this, and I wish. They taught me how to do it. But anyway, but you probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Sort of you would have but, said, but, but I was, "Rack off!" I, no, well, there you go. I was did about I've done about three years of that and was doing really well. But the week before, I was about to do. I think it might have been the fourth year. Um, I had a bit of a, um, a funny bit of a turn, which turned out to be a rather significant stroke, and lost lost about twenty percent of my brain, I think. And uh, this is the week before the creative leadership. So that wasn't going to be an option. Yeah, right. So oh, you, That's the pick I saw earlier, that literally there yeah, is there is yeah, a big slab of your brain gone. Yeah, it's, it's gone into the, in the bin, that bit had. But um, that's on the left-hand side of my brain. So I could walk and I talk, but I had a word salad. So it wasn't making any sense at all. But that was, um, but I thought the best thing I could do after this, and I started with three words. And just to build up. So the best That's the thing, re- rehabilitation. Rehabilitate. After the stroke, right? So I start the best thing I could do. I start started doing some art. Started an art gallery. Um, I started to write um, stories and articles about uh, a little bit about my experience. But I wanted to try and prove that it doesn't it doesn't end. Nothing stops. You just keep going as hard as you can, as long as you can, and don't feel sorry for yourself. Just get off your ass and do something about it. So I thought, well, I, what I could do, I could paint and I could drawer and I wanted to do sculpture and I wanted to turn into a, an art brand as well. And I thought, well, it sort of compels you to have to do something. So you can't, um, it's a bit of a muddle. It takes me, I, I, I um, take a bit more time and a bit more careful so I don't sort of get too overexcited with anything. But basically after a stroke, um, I try and be more considered and um, have to put, 
teaches me to write articles better. So actually some people, I bit a big uh, on LinkedIn, and people said I wouldn't have changed a word, which I had done by myself. So it's just a, you have to prove to yourself that you can do something. Otherwise, well, I'm still struggling or struggling to reconcile what you're talking about because uh, you have to motor off very soon from the studio to go and jump in a bloody car and go fanging around a car circuit yes, in a fast know, car. How crazy I, is that with half a brain? Well, Twenty percent, 80% I, of a brain. Yes, I drive around in very uncomfortable, very loud, and uh, I've hit the wall a couple of times, so I'm a bit <laughs> stupid anyway. But um, I like older cars, and and um, anyway, like, I like I need an adrenaline rush because life's a bit dull without adrenaline. I think so. So you're still driving fast and doing crazy. Still things. driving fast, yes, as much as I can, and um, yes, I like going surfing. But I'm an old tea bag these days as a, as a surf surfer. But but anyway, look, I just you do as much as you much fun as you possibly can doing doing what you um, with the time that you have. And don't cher- every moment is you have to cherish it and make the most of it. So that's all I'm trying to do from now on. What about you, Faye? What's what's your life look like today? What are you doing and how much enjoyment is coming from that? Well, until COVID, you know, put a stop to my meanderings around the world, I spent an awful lot of time in Africa. I was very interested in um, studying the sustainability of lives of certain tribes in Eastern and Western Africa and how they managed to live their lives in a simple way and and their adornment from an art director's point of view was something which always uh, I was fascinated by. So um, I became involved in, in living and trying to live with tribes in Africa, mainly in Namibia, and uh, doing a sort of uh, anecdotes on the lives that they live and photographing them and I've been spending a lot of time doing that. And one of the things that I've I found which was fascinating is that we talk about equality and gender equality and female um, positions in the world, et cetera. And one of the things that I think is one of the biggest problem that we have is that males historically have always had the idea that they own women. For centuries, that has been the premise of getting married and the person became a property of the male. And I did notice in a particularly two tribes where this is not the case. The women are lauded because they know without women, the tribes would never survive. So I found that the, the basis on which the, the, the way in which their social structure happens is that they respect their women. And until we can learn to actually have a basic respect for women, then we are just going to be trying to sort of fill quotas and do things that we feel are that we deserve, but that will never happen unless the basic respect is right from the grassroots, and that's something I certainly learned when I've been in Africa. Wow, and and just on that, are those tribes thriving, or what happens? Yes, yes, they are, um, even because they understand the land, they understand climate change, they understand, as long as the, the Europeans and the big business people don't move in and disrupt their way of life, they can they are perfectly happy to live the way in which they're living and they don't want to be influenced you know they don't want their religious ideas and their ancestral lands and their the way in which they can they can actually talk to their ancestors through their through their ancestral fires and things which they had told me i have used to be able to do centuries ago but i've 
lost because my brain and my head are so filled with extraneous noise, I would never have a chance to be able to have that facility. Yeah, fascinating. And that, that is part of your sort of photo uh, photography project, uh, photographic project, yeah? Yes, yes. Which is? The books that I do are called lookbooks. Lookbooks, yeah. Yeah, but the, the, what I'm doing now is actually working with um, anthropologists and trying to actually get a whole body of work together for two exhibitions, one in Paris and one in New York. Uh, let me just bow and shut up because um, I don't know how I can even get close to that. Uh, Sarah, where are you? You're an anti-vax capital now, aren't you, or something? <laughs> yes, I'm taking a sabbatical, perhaps permanent. Uh, in well, But hang on, perhaps permanent means that you're open. You, you, will we see Sarah back in, in maybe or not? I doubt it. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there might be an odd project or two. Right. But, yeah, we um, we moved back to Byron just in time for the bushfires, so it's been a, a baptism of mm. fire um, and weren't intending to spend all our time there, but then COVID, like with Faye, has uh, stopped our travels. So uh, we spent the time renovating a house that we have there, which was a, a great creative project. Um, I joined WIRES, so it's an animal um, wildlife rescue service, and um, I've been trying to do some courses. But oh, this is where you're then, chasing honey honey, honey yeah. eaters. <laughs> yes, <laughs> rescuing Not tawny ants. frog mouths. And yes, I'm, I'm giving back after I've killed those five <laughs> ants. Um, so I do that and then picked up a paintbrush again and doing a bit of painting. And then, of course, Shane and I were going to sort of do a six-month uh, Byron sort of stay and then go travelling around the Northern Hemisphere for six months doing, you know, garden tours of Britain or cooking tours on in Italy and following our favourite bands around various um Crochet cities. in there anywhere? No. <laughs> no, definitely not that. But no. just, yeah, living, you know, the good life. I miss Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, all of those wonderful places because yeah. I used to travel there. We used to travel there so much. Um yeah. Because of work as well. And it may come back. Yet, yeah, hold fingers crossed. Will you do it? You're you're up for that? Ready, May. Ready to go. May, I'm thinking. Right. <laughs> Bag packed already. Final question. Advice to industry leaders and new talent. What would you say, uh, Faye, again, from the outside, a bit like uh, your observations on advertising, what do you suggest that, um, you know, any big tips for industry leaders and emerging talent? What's your thoughts? Just three things, really, which was what we all tried to live by. Um, at my agency, DDI, be brave, be original, and be honest. Mm. Without those three things as the basis on which to build whatever you want to build, then it becomes vacuous. So I think it's worth considering. Warren, what's your take? What would you say? It's almost these days, it's every every week at a time. Anything's going to change on you. So I think you have to be quick on your feet. You have to react quickly and um, and don't get too distracted on something. If you have a conviction or, or confidence to pursue something, hold on to that. That's good. That, that keeps, you, keeps you going basically. So whatever it is that you want to do, make sure that you've got that, that sort of path, whatever journey you're on, um, enjoy it. Go for it. Sarah. Yeah, I think um, I concur with Faye, but I think I think we need a revolution <laughs> across the world in in so many disciplines. You know, as I spoke about before, the politics is just um, incredulous to me that we've got such um, ineffectual people uh, leading the country and representing us. Like I can tell you, the people in power do not represent me at all, and I'm sure many people like minded. So I think 
And as with our industry, I think we just have to speak up and overturn the this the system however we can and be bold, be brave, and but be honest, be truthful to yourself and, and don't shy away from what you believe in, even if you're told we can't take risks or we don't have the money or whatever reason. I think we just need to, yeah. Cut the excuse. Change the system, yeah, from within. I just wanted to say, look, absolutely, um, I'm honoured and it's a pleasure to have uh, two wonderful women to be part of this um, uh, award um, Hall of Fame. And you're in the year that it, you're in the year that the two women, first two women in the Hall of Fame, get it. Yes, it, it is an honour. So, but I've I've spent my whole career working with some fabulous women, so I was lucky, and um, it's great to see that we have two fantastic women have been appointed onto the uh, Hall of Fame, so that's brilliant. And hats off to you too, Warren, for a big, big, illustrious clear, and, and we, you know, you're honoured, rightfully so. Sarah Barclay, Faye Davis, Warren Brown, uh, fabulous conversation, great sort of grounding uh, in, in, in retrospect of what, what happened and what makes great people, what makes talented people, what makes things uh, better in some ways, and some really, really, uh, some very meaningful uh, observations around the industry and life and life as we know it. So stay safe. Congratulations, all of you, uh, on, on what is, you know, uh, uh, essentially don't like to uh, get too uh, overblown on things, but it is a watershed year in, in that, you know, uh, finally we've got some women in the Hall of Fame, uh, even though you may have followed a bloody ad agency uh, into it. I can't, you know, they're still, still surprised. I shake my head at that. But look forward to the comebacks. That would be good. Uh, stay safe. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Thank you. Paul. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.